Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! I am Austin Hayden, and I am joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We have Raymond. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Who is not wearing a beanie, and he's left out of the Cool <laughs> Kids Club for this episode. And we show, have... I should have said, show me, show me the beanie. <laughs> yeah. right, let's, okay, let's restart it. Let's restart it. Let's go All back right, to one. we have Raymond! <laughs> Okay. Uh, hey, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going? Not wearing a beanie. <laughs> and we have Rashawn joining us, who, if you remember, he is one of the co-hosts of the When Cinephiles Attack podcast. and yeah. he is Returning back. champion from last week's uh, <laughs> Zack Snyder episode, or two weeks ago. Champion? Did I win something? Or? Yes. Yeah. We all remember you, you pummeling Josh into the dirt, <laughs> like Batman to Superman, and saying, I'm coming back next week. <laughs> that is right. And so this week we're going to be talking about one of the Oscar-nominated Best Picture films, Judas and the Black Messiah, directed by Shaka King, produced by the rising star that is Ryan Coogler, who has the Midas touch, it seems, at the moment. And it is starring Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons, Martin Sheen's in it, and then a, a whole host of actually other brilliant actors that we can name drop um, throughout the episode. So what we're going to do is first thing is we're going to talk about first impressions, go around and see what it was like when someone first watched the film, and if they had a repeat viewing, what it was like on the repeat viewing, or if not, then we'll just stick with the first impression. Then we'll do a recap, and then we'll kind of start picking things apart, peeling back the onions, and see what we can um, squeeze out of what is, I believe, a, a rich film for... It's kind of designed for this type of analysis, I think. So I'm really excited to talk about this. So let's do first impressions. Let's start with Rashawn. Uh, so today, before we got on, this was my second watch. I had seen it back when it first debuted on HBO Max. I was a little hesitant because I know a moderate amount about Fred Hampton and what he did in Illinois. And um, I just had some reservations about a such a Hollywood film about someone like Fred Hampton. Um, but I love everyone involved. I loved everyone in front of and behind the camera. And then I went away from the movie just mixed, with mixed mm. feelings. Um, today, watching it, I think, was a really interesting day to, to watch this movie. Yeah, no kidding. But um, I, I like it a lot more. And I'm, I'm glad. I am someone that rewatches movies a second time, at least. And I came away with a much different perspective and, and, and appreciating it a lot more as a movie. I think that's really important mm. that I I liked the movie that it is. Um, and I do have nitpicks and, and still reservations here and there about the subject of the film. But as a film, I think it's incredible. Yeah. All right. Raymond, what do you think, brother? Um, I, uh, similar to Rashawn, I saw this movie when it came out on HBO Max, um, and similar to Rashawn, I was a little bit apprehensive about how, uh, Hollywood 
would handle this kind of subject matter. Um, but uh, we had even had a conversation after we both watched it, Rashawn, where I, I was saying, and I kind of remarked on the Escapist podcast with our friends over there, that I was really, like, really taken aback. And I don't even want to say, like, pleasantly surprised, because it was more just shocked that uh, Warner Brothers made this movie. Um, you know, it's, it, it is kind of the, the typical thing that you see with a biopic uh, for uh, big revolutionary leaders like Fred Hampton is that they, they have a tendency when they make big blockbuster movies or, or at least studio films out of them, they, they have a tendency to shave off the edges a little bit. Uh, they, they don't go as deep into the political stuff. But uh, this one was, it was pleasantly surprising to see them just dive right in. And like you, you hear him directly confronting capitalism on screen. You, you know, he, uh, he and the other Panthers throughout the film are, are giving their, their full-throated uh, full support to uh, their, their socialist ideals. And I, I, I remember turning to my girlfriend after watching this movie and saying, like, somebody at Warner Brothers got fucking fired for this one, <laughs> undoubtedly. <laughs> like, it just, it, it, it's just, it's had this kind of a, a, a weird run, uh, especially everything being so weird with the pandemic that this didn't get the traditional Oscar rollout uh, the way that movies typically do. Um, but it is, it, it's such a, a richly observed uh, character study. And I agree with Rashawn. I have some nitpicks um, chief amongst them. I think sometimes the movie functions almost as like a collection of great scenes more so than like a, mm. a, a real solid narrative. But for a movie that's drawn from history, it's tough to fit historical moments within a really clean narrative. So I don't fault it too much for that. But I, I mean, the, those, the, the collection of scenes that we have is really, really solid. The performances are wonderful. Um, and I, uh, I, I really enjoy this movie. I, I rewatched it to prep for the podcast. I also did some reading to prep for the podcast. And I, uh, I really enjoyed rewatching it through that lens, having read a little bit more uh, and, and refamiliarized myself with uh, not only Fred Hampton, but some of the other Panthers and uh, uh, the FBI agents surrounding this, uh, this entire film. Cool. Yeah, I too was apprehensive before watching the film because of all the reasons that you both have stated. Whenever Hollywood gets its hands on something, it always moves towards the side of sentimentalism, um, the establishment of like individual hero myths. Um, and I was a little bit worried that in their efforts to examine this historical context, they would they would do that. And while I did get um, emotionally roused in this film quite a bit, I didn't come away from it feeling like it was sentimental. I felt like it was highly emotional, but there wasn't a sentimentality. And I think there's a distinction there that's a really difficult line to, to, to walk. And I think they did a really nice job of doing that. Uh, I did feel that the pacing was a little off at times in the film. I don't think that on my first viewing... Um, that I that I loved it as a film, but here's the distinction. I think it's a, an extremely important and rich piece of cinema, and I think there's a difference. And um, and and I think that this is the type of film that is a great vehicle for opening up conversation and it for for confronting us with the voice or the face of 
that which is other than the typical ways that we tend to communicate in the world and through the world. And I think that when you're confronted with things like that, that's what produces thought. And then I'm, I think that maybe that's what art, when it's serving that end, maybe that's when art is the best, right? When it, when it is confronting and it challenges us to pause and stop. And, and so that's what I think this piece of cinema does more than anything for me. Um, and then I did a podcast episode on Owls at Dawn with Dr. Kamasi Hill, who is a PhD in African-American history and black liberation struggles. And uh, we talked a lot about this. And he actually did a documentary that's going to be coming out later this year called Born in the Struggle, in which Fred Hampton Jr. is actually a part of it. And the whole documentary is about children of black radicals. And Kamasi himself is a child of black radicals uh, from Detroit, but lives in Chicago now. So uh, and has lived in Chicago for like 20 years. So he was a really interesting voice to kind of help me download a lot of things and, and kind of like unpack a lot of things. And um, and so maybe there's a sense in which this piece of art is best served in the legs that it has after you get out of the theater, if that makes sense. That it's so much in the theater, but that it stays with you for such a long time and it produces these kinds of conversations um, or those types of reflections when you're sitting alone or when you're watching the news and something happens and it somehow creates another connection. Maybe that's what I think is best about this film, right? Even if I do think that the, the experience of watching it in the cinema where there were moments where there were lulls, the heights of emotional resonance were so high that it kind of made up for that for me if that makes sense. So that was kind of my experience of, of watching this. So, okay, so let's go into the recap real quick, and then we'll start unpacking some things. So Bill O'Neill is a petty criminal who gets busted for impersonating a police officer, and he's given an ultimatum. Either go to prison or infiltrate the Black Panther Party, and then get close to, at that time, Oakland chairman Fred Hampton. Of course, he chooses the latter. So he gets closer and closer to Hampton, all the while leaking info to the feds. Uh, Hampton's work, however, with the Free Breakfast for Children program, the Rainbow Coalition, among other social and political programs, they start to create a sort of existential crisis for Bill. He's getting paid by the feds, but he's also aware of the impending reality that he's directly contributing to, namely that the feds are going to move in on Hampton and the others and likely harm them. After Hampton gets arrested, Bill rises the ranks of the BPP, so when Hampton is eventually released, Bill is an even more integral member. FBI Director uh, J. Edgar Hoover eventually orders that Hampton be neutralized. Bill doesn't understand why this option needs to be taken, but he ends up following through and helps the FBI corner Hampton and other BPP members. The FBI break into Hampton's apartment while everyone is asleep, gun down the BPP members, killing Hampton in the process. The film ends with archived footage of Bill O'Neill giving an interview about his involvement. He gives a conflicted answer, justifying his actions by claiming that he at least was on the ground doing stuff for the community. After this interview was aired, Bill committed suicide. Today, Fred Hampton Jr. and his mother are heavily involved in carrying out Fred Hampton Sr.'s mission of global, global economic justice, and we see that because of a title card that is brought up at the end. Now, this is a really, 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 really sketchy, brief overview of what happens. There's so many other things that take place that impinge upon who Fred Hampton was. Um, he has a partner who ends up uh, getting pregnant and has a child, and there's this conflict between family versus being a person for the cause that is also um, a really important through line here. But this is just the basic uh, kind of scratch notes, if you will, of the plot here. So that's kind of what we get with this film, and we're going to unpack it on the other side of a little break here. 
Before we continue, I want to shout out this episode's sponsor, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is a huge lifesaver when it comes to stock assets. They've got over 1 million royalty-free, high-quality videos, audio clips, and images. With an affordable subscription model, you'll never have to sacrifice quality for your project. In 2020, more people picked up streaming than ever before, but you can't quite get started without the right background music to set the scene, right? YouTube and Twitch are really cracking down on copyright claims, so stock audio is the best way to keep your channel up and running. You can even find sound clips to load on your stream deck if you're trying to add some spice to your channel. So if you sign up for Storyblocks' unlimited all-access plan, you can get unlimited downloads of everything in their library. So stack your playlist with the best sounds to game slash chill and talk to. Check out all their subscription plans today by going to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack. That's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack now back to the show okay so now let's jump into the main themes of this film um rashawn you said when you first saw the film you again had mixed feelings about it but upon a repeated viewing it kind of grew on you a little yeah what do you think yeah what do you think that was why well first of all what were your what were your critiques let's say why didn't it not perfectly land for you when you first saw it i the thing that i really didn't care for it and I think even on the repeat viewing is there's a moment there are moments in the film where they can't help themselves but to show a sympathetic side to the FBI and to the Jesse, the Jesse Plemons character uh, you mean right yeah yeah and I think it's it's enough that he just he's just doing his job, but we have to see him with Hoover kind of being pressured to do more. And a lot of that is a testament to just how fucking good Jesse Plemons is. Like he's he's, great. He's not going to, he's so good in this. Yeah. He's not going to give you a bad character. Yeah. But the script does him, does deal him a little bit more to work with than. Yeah. Yeah. Where if we had the scene where he invites O'Neill over and kind of, subtly pressures him and then we didn't get that scene later on where hoover asks about his daughter i think i think it's okay to leave him leave him and the fbi as just the villains i I didn't need a little bit more rounded characterization for them because the movie is about judas and the black messiah you know so i wanted i wanted to stay with them more and I think those moments where we kind of go back to the FBI and get a little bit more uh, backstory, for lack of a better word, it kind of hurts the film a little bit. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because it breaks up the pacing? Or do you think that at like an ideological level, you think it somehow does a disservice to the momentum of the narrative, both? <laughs> a little bit, because in that in that moment, Fred there's a stretch where they take Fred out of the picture and he's, he's in jail yeah. for a good like third, 30, 40 minutes. And there, he writes that great letter t- and you kind of get to see him for a bit, but I think breaking up the narrative to kind of sideline him and get a little bit more FBI was, was not the best, best way to go. Yeah. It is interesting. Who's the main character, right? Is it Bill? Uh, as the antagonist, yeah. or is is because the 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 sympathetic character is Fred, but at the same time we also empathize 
Well, I guess we we empathize maybe with both, but we also we also are meant to sort of get the struggle that Bill is going through, and I think they go to great lengths to try to make us feel that the weight of that existential condition that he's placed in, right? Like doing his duty so that he can get his money because he kind of was he was a petty criminal and fucking trying to survive, but then at the same time, he's a part of this community that is doing real good and he's like shit and then I got to betray them, but it's so so I think that's interesting, but yeah, who's the freaking main character here? Uh, that that's a question I think a lot of folks have been asking themselves, especially after the Academy Award nominations, positioning both Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield as supporting actors. Um, and and this is something that you know whether it's category fraud or it's just how people felt when they cast their ballots. Like uh, th- this is a question for a lot of movies that essentially amount to like ensemble pieces. But on this rewatch, I was kind of watching it with that lens. I didn't have a stopwatch out or anything like that, but I, I was kind of thinking to myself, yeah, who, who are we most positioned with perspective-wise? And for the most part, it, it feels like it, maybe it's just because he's so commanding and he's so good in the role, but it, it does feel like Daniel Kaluuya's movie. Um, you know, we, we have a, a clear sense of, of what he believes in, what he's going through, even though... The FBI is pulling the strings. Roy Mitchell is the narrative agent of change. He's still reacting to uh, Fred Hampton in a way. Um, so uh, especially this comes back to the question of like the pacing or structural issues with the screenplay and, and how difficult it is to uh, fit these real events, especially spread out across a few years worth of time uh, within the structure of an hour and a half or a two hour long movie. Um, but I uh, I feel pretty comfortable saying like Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya are kind of like co-leads in this. We see most of the movie through their perspective. And and to uh, to tag what Rashawn was saying, I I do agree with you. It is kind of weird that they do they do position Roy Mitchell as someone who is like at times it just seems like he's just following orders and that he's really conflicted about this. And when they when they tell him about the the shell game that they're playing with their other informant George Sams how they'll send him into one Black Panther headquarters just to, so they can justify a warrant and, uh, and and have a pretense for a raid. He looks at him and he goes, wait, so, wait, you're telling me that you knew all along who the informant was and the blah, blah, blah? And they look at him like, yeah, man, we're the FBI. <laughs> like, like there, there are moments like that where it does feel like the script is kind of, I don't want to say letting Roy Mitchell off the hook because at the end of the day, regardless of I, I I can see why they make changes to his motivation a little bit and for the narrative I think that works at the end of the day what's most important to me at least is that they don't change the substance of his actions like they don't they don't let him off the hook he still ends up as long uh, as well as with um Lakeith Stanfield's character Bill O'Neill that those two characters are pretty true to the actions that they both committed in real life so I can see wanting the actor's to at least have a little bit more dimension to play. So I give him some slack. See, here's the weird thing for me that I still don't know what the answer is, is from a filmic perspective, from a narrative and story perspective, I totally get what you're saying, and I actually fully agree. From an ideological perspective, from like a a, a thought perspective, I'm glad that they didn't make Jesse Plemons like some sort of mini J. Edgar Hoover, who's just a bastard, right, in this film. I'm glad that they showed us um, 
this sort of complexity because then what that does is that makes you realize, oh, so when we talk about systemic racism, it's not a moral issue. It's a structural issue. It's about a, a thing, an entity like the FBI that sort of becomes an organism in its own right and it has its own motivations. And when you become a part of the FBI, you might be a quote unquote nice guy but still you carry out atrocious acts. So this is the weird tension. So, so from like a, an historical and from understanding things, that's right. But does that then make the story less momentum driven, right? Like, so, so maybe that's the fundamental problem too of making these types of social films. Like sometimes the film can be the vehicle through which you're trying to give your message and does that somehow pump the brakes on the flow of the narrative? And that's why these types of political films are always so freaking difficult to make, you know? Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I I actually agree with you because I think if a different movie hadn't attempted to give him that shading, we would have knocked it for him just being a kind of one-note villain. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so I I agree with what you're saying and it is that tension where you're like I don't want to know more about these. <laughs> motherfuckers you know <laughs> but but it's a movie so you yeah. kind of have to give everyone a, a well-rounded arc of some sort so yeah. those scenes with with hoover were necessary but yeah i agree with you I, I and, so. and i i do like that they just go for it with j edgar hoover yeah mustache twirling ghoul yeah <laughs> and, and it is there is a, yeah. a certain like perversion to the casting martin sheen in that because his most iconic role is as the like paragon of virtue in the uh uh, uh what's it called uh, the west wing as uh jed bartlett and, and and it is it is funny to see him like vamping around in this ridiculous the the jolly fat suit and everything. It's 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 a very nice kind of subversive bit of casting. And I I, I am curious. A lot of folks uh, talk about if if Jordan Peele was consciously uh, casting Bradley Whitford because of the baggage that he brought from The West Wing into Get Out. Um, and I, I wonder if there's a, a similar thing happening with this. I would like to think so because I, I think it's pretty clever. I also think there's something that we could keep lingering over and think about the structure of how they tell the narrative. So the film is bookended by Bill and then Fred is kind of the – he's kind of – he's the messiah. He's the messiah figure. He's the one who comes with the message of redemption and he's the one who's betrayed by the Judas figure, Right. Um, or the Brutus figure, or whatever whatever myth you want to use. Obviously, they're leaning into the Christian myth here, but um, there's something extremely interesting about how they frame that. And then again, this goes back to the tension of who's the main character. I feel like so often when Hollywood does a biopic, right? Like if this were to be, if this were just simply the Fred Hampton biopic, then you wouldn't have. Um, the same juxtaposition maybe it would be just here's the good guy and then here's the people trying to get the good guy right and then maybe that's when it would fall into sentimentalism but this one is kind of like like who is this is this other guy this bill character is he is it okay that we can empathize with a conflicted figure and then at the same time i wonder if this then allows us because so much focus is on that conflict if this allows us 
to be more radical with Fred Hampton's message without watering it down to just some sort of like moralizing message. He can still be the actual Marxist revolutionary that he was who attacks economic disparity, not just racial issues, by building a rainbow coalition, by actually speaking about yeah. Mao. Like, Focusing so, on class. Yeah, so yeah. somehow there, it gives you more wiggle room because he isn't just the central... Superman kind of figure, whereas typically if you have the central Superman figure, it becomes like a moralizing tale. And I wonder if that's one of the nice strategies of dividing it the way that it did is it allowed the filmmakers and the writers to be more true to the message precisely because then what you had is the sort of moral dilemma on the other side. Yeah, I listened to an interview with, um, uh, I can't remember if it was uh, Ryan Coogler or Shaka King who said, uh, because they were being interviewed at the same time, and one of them remarked that uh, if you were to make a movie that was just about Fred Hampton, no one would believe it. That it, it, he was, in their words, he was superhuman. That the guy was he, twenty years he, old. He never. Yeah, he was. He was twenty-one years old. Like he was already on an FBI watch list by the time he was fourteen. Um, his organizing when he was in when he was in high school, or I think even in uh, elementary school. Um, he was already organizing for like a, a public pool for black kids. Uh, he, he helped get uh, a bunch of black teachers added to the, uh, the administration and staff at his school. When he was a kid, he was organizing from within his classroom. <laughs> like the, the guy was just, uh, I, I was listening to uh, an interview with his son where he was saying that by all accounts, when he was raised, everyone told him that his dad just was like, the words that that uh, Fred Hampton Jr. used were that uh, he he has a friend who's when he's cooking every time he tastes it when when he knows it's ready he goes that's it and that friend of his described his dad in the same way he was like oh yeah he just when he was born it was just like that's it that that's just it and there is this this weird thing that they 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 you know they touch on in the movie. Um, but it, it would almost seem disingenuous to, to make a movie that where everyone is speaking about him as earnestly as they do in these interviews because it's like, whoa, so the guy can't be that amazing, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that I know earlier, Ray, you said that it's kind of Daniel's film, but I, I still think that O'Neill comes away as the protagonist of the movie. And he just, because of how good Daniel is, he just doesn't seem to, like, touch the ground. You know, he, he's <laughs> walking around and he's, any room he walks into, he's this great orator and he does a speech. He wins over everyone in the room and then he leaves. And the moments that we get with Deborah mm. are, are hidden away. You know, O'Neill never sees any of that. So to him... Yeah, he's his. He ends up being his driver and his bodyguard, but he doesn't see him being a human. Like we he sees get him that. as a symbol. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Right. So we get all no, that, and but O'Neill never sees any of that. So I think, you know, just narratively speaking, he he drives the plot. He's the one that drugs him. I, I think it's still pretty much O'Neill's movie. It's just Daniel is like a titan and <laughs> on I, camera. I, I think so that may get really... to the tension a little bit too. That yeah. uh, it, when you when you read uh, a bunch more about, like, if you read about Bill O'Neill, people say, even in retrospect, like, knowing that he was an informant, they were like, 
we, you know, there was stuff that tipped people off here and there. He would say things that were upsetting or that people would question him. But then when he was in like Fred Hampton's thrall, he, he was just, I, I, I do from what I've read, it seems like he was genuinely, they have that scene where Jesse Plemons says like, either you're an Oscar caliber actor or you really believe this stuff. Mm. And there, there is this kind of back and forth even to this day about, uh, about Bill O'Neill's investment in the cause and, and his overall ambivalence and, and people like not really knowing where his allegiances lied. Because I, I do think and it's a credit to Lakeith Stanfield, but uh, the way that the character is written, not just performed, it, it, it is a credit to that, that, uh, that, that guy, by by all accounts, people think like he he maybe was genuinely fucked up about what the 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 corner that he was put in by uh by both the FBI and the Panthers. Well, I don't think he would have committed suicide, um, in the way that he did under the circumstances that he did if he wasn't deeply deeply conflicted. It seems like in the interview from the archived footage, he somehow justifies it to himself that hey, I was there and I did stuff. Right, I was I was on the ground. So you can critique me all you want, but what did you do? Is kind of how it came out to me, where he's like, at least I fucking was involved in trying to make the lives of people better, which is then a very strange line to take because you're like, yeah, but dude, you were an informant the whole time, and you ended up getting a bunch of these people killed. So there's clearly a contradiction there. But I love what Rashawn said. The human moments of Fred Hampton are hidden from Bill, and so it's almost like what. What captured Bill is the gravitas of this public figure, this master orator, this messianic figure. And I wonder if he would have seen the vulnerability of Hampton, the weakness that he has with Deborah, especially in the first scene when they first have their coffee together. That's the first time where Fred is not the larger-than-life figure. That's when he's the, he's the boy. You see him as a little bit of a, a boy with a crush. And you're like, oh, shit. Okay. So he's not... With the scene the scene where they're doing the Malcolm X impersonation? Yes. Or... Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> That's a really good it's, one. And it's beautiful. And then the bit when she calls him out because she has a child and she reads that poem, right? And and she basically essentially is like, like I'm worried that you're going to die. And he gives his answer, which is the right answer for his mission of redemption as the Messiah, which is my causes to the people. But there's, I don't know, maybe it's just because I was projecting, but I felt the tension that she got him a little bit, that she pinned him a little bit, but he couldn't give himself fully over to the family because he'd already made a decision. So there's a tension in him too. But but only we, the audience, got to see that. Deborah got to see that. But the other people in the party didn't get to see that. So I wonder if that's what made it easier then for someone like Bill to continue his mission because he wasn't he wasn't giving over a real human. He was giving over an image or a symbol. But had he had access to that that weakness, if that would have somehow made it even more difficult. And I, there's something about human weakness that that when we're when we're in touch with it, it makes us it makes it harder for us to betray that person or hurt that person because then you're like, fuck, I. I too am conflicted, and then you walk in the other person's shoes, and then you can't betray the other person. Yeah, I it, because the first time we see him in FBI custody, I think Roy asks him, you know, what do you think about Malcolm X? What do you think about the speeches? Like he has no any kind of idea about any of that. He's like, I don't really think about it. 
you know, he's just literally doing this to survive. So I think when he gets wrapped up in the Panthers, it, these are people that have something to live and die for. And I don't think he's ever ran up against something like that before. And that people that have beliefs because MLK, Malcolm, like he just doesn't, he's one of those people that it didn't even phase him. And he even, he even says that um, in the eyes on the prize interview where he, he says something to the effect of, you know, we didn't have a lot of heroes. There was Martin Luther King. There was Malcolm X. There was Muhammad Ali and I had an FBI agent. And I think, uh, like you were saying, Rashawn, that may speak to the degree to which, like, he just sort of would cling on to not necessarily an ideology, but a personality more than anything. And just to circle back to uh, uh, to Deborah Jones as well, we, we, we've been talking so much about uh, Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield in this. Dominique Fishback is very good in this movie. She is so good in this. And she she does something that I think is is really difficult or could be very, very difficult or challenging for an actor in, in this part that uh, this role with a lesser performer could sink into the background or, or, or could like lose every scene to use like an actor term um, that she she really holds her own and there there are so many I was I, I think I was struck most on my rewatch by the the use of close-ups in this there are some wonderful close-ups of Dominique Fishback in this where whether reacting to uh, something that Fred is saying, uh, most most pointedly uh, in the speech where he he's let out of prison on bail uh, before having to go back to, to finish up his term for the the ice cream robbery, um, where she's in the audience and just every time they cut to her, it's a thousand words. I mean, she's she's doing so much with relatively little compared to a lot of her other castmates and. I, I think she goes to some really beautiful and vulnerable is places. This, in this, is so. this the "I am a revolutionary" speech? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That that speech. It, it's that speech, but it's also it's that speech is kind of like Fred Hampton's greatest hits. There's a bunch of stuff from like his most recognizable speeches in that. Yeah. Um, but it is like it all plays together. It's pretty good it's, stuff. That scene is so well crafted because you have Fred making his. It's like his thesis statement. His triumphalist. This is his Jesus moment, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is the fucking, this is it, right? And then you have the Lakeith Stanfield, Bill character, who's there, who's caught up in it, but then who has Clearly is making eye contact with Jesse Plemons. And then you have Jesse Plemons who's sitting there, who in that moment he's embodying the diabolical foil role, like just kind of staring with a kind of like... Um, like a, I'm watching you remember who you are, like the devil. He's almost like the devil at that point. And then you have, fuck, is this maybe being too too religious here? You have the Mary, the Mary figure? I don't know. But then you have Deborah because um, in a way she does raise the child without a father. So obviously she's not a virgin, perpetual virgin, but there's something about this, like turning this into like a, uh, um, a black liberation theology narrative of Jesus that she becomes comes the kind of like Mary figure and Fred Hampton Jr. then, you know, carries on the tradition, obviously, after his father's death. Um, but but there's something then about then going to her and you see her wanting to believe and fully believing in everything that Fred is saying and at the same time coming to an awareness that 
that he's going to die, that he is a sacrificial lamb, that his cause is for the people. And those four viewpoints are just so brilliantly kind of interwoven together. That scene, and of course it's the scene that they use in the trailer. It's kind of the film's centerpiece. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It 100% is because I think ev- all the tensions are there in that one scene. You you could, if all four of them were nominated for Oscars, you could conceivably use that same scene for each of their <laughs> <Yeah>. clips. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it is one of those things where I mentioned before that sometimes this movie does feel a little bit like just a collection of great scenes. Not just a collection, like, you know, uh, I don't want to uh, diminish the accomplishments of the film. But I think more so, especially when, when Daniel Kaluuya is on screen, there there are some times where certain scenes have kind of a clunky setup i think particularly when he um he he goes to talk to uh, uh william fesperman and the young patriots uh in in that church with a big confederate mm. flag hanging there's very little pretense at the top of that where the the black panthers are kind of grumbling about the confederate flag and it there's kind of three or four lines of exchange between them and then Fred Hampton goes. Mm. And then there's there are other scenes throughout the movie that have kind of that similar structure where it's like, yeah, we just need a little bit of a little bit of dialogue up front, but the meat of the scene is always like, and now Fred Hampton speaks. So there there are some times where the movie feels like it hinges a little bit too much on that structure and if it weren't so well if it weren't so uh, well done and well executed, from scene to scene, you would probably realize that like, oh, there's not there's not a whole lot moving forward with the narrative with this, but it's like, oh, but I mean, this is this is the fabric of these characters' lives. Like, this is their advocacy. This is this is what made him a threat. This, you know, so that or at least a, a perceived threat. Uh, excuse me. Um, so it, it, it is one of those things where, like I said before, I don't, I don't want to fault it too much, but there are some times where it feels like this movie, for better or worse, is kind of like, it's kind of a Fred Hampton playlist, and I'm, I'm so down with that. <laughs> like, I think there are much worse things that could be out in the wild. Yeah, to go back to the, the speech in the church, it just, what you were saying, Austin, with the, the religious allegory with Jesus and Mary, and... And then on the surface, it's Fred, it's Roy, it's Deborah, and and then I think also it can be just a, a black man standing up in front of his people, a black woman who loves him, watching him, mm. his brother who is going to ultimately betray him, and then in the very back, there's a white man who's mm. pretty much controlling everything that's going on behind the scenes, and so I think like you guys said, it's, it's the centerpiece of the film, but it's so rich with, you can just kind of pull anything you need subtext. You can kind of place your own beliefs or, or, or kind of imprint onto it. But I think that scene is just so well done. And all four of them are, are just on fire. Yeah. What does this you mean? Even get a glimpse yeah, of, ahead, Oh, sorry. Just, yeah. but really briefly, you even get a glimpse of what, uh, what Fred Hampton says to the young Patriots, uh, in that scene before you, where he says, you know, what, what would have happened if, if the overseers had joined the slaves and slit the master's throat, you get a glimpse of Jesse Plemons as, as of Jesse Plemons as overseer in that moment where it's like, 
could could he possibly be taken in by like is mm. there a way to like win him over if anyone can do it it's the man at the microphone and you you do get a sense of what fred hampton was talking about and and uh kind of like what the angle was in that moment was like yeah we have to we have to decouple the people who are quote unquote just doing their jobs from the people who are giving the orders and until we're capable of doing that we're going to keep hitting the same wall but sorry the, go ahead Austin. no no well this is the, uh, kind of brought up another point but this is why the film's a tragedy right this is why the film is a tragedy and this is why the christian narrative from a social gospel or liberation theology sense is a tragedy obviously in christianity you have the resurrection and then pentecost and the pouring out of the spirit and all that other stuff so the question is is does that happen afterwards right after fred hampton's death uh is there a type of quote unquote resurrection is fred hampton jr then a sort of quote second coming i mean i'm using this really loosely and allegorically here but the the point is that what we get on screen is a tragedy Tragedy, and I love what Rashawn just said. Uh, at one level, you have um, a black woman who loves a black man, a brother who's going to betray, but then outside of that is the structure. Outside of that is almost in a way, and this is where the tragedy is and where it could be viewed as defeatist, it doesn't matter what you do, the system's still going to get you. But then here's where the hope comes in. Okay, we recognize that it's the system. And that's why I enjoy the fact that it's a structural critique rather than just simply a moral critique. It isn't, well, if we just got the bad guys and prosecuted them with justice, then Jesse, if Jesse Plemons' character, if J. Edgar Hoover were fired, no. no. It's the system of the FBI. It's the system that uh, reproduces itself, that almost becomes an organic agent in itself. And that's there. And then once the focus is on that, then it, even though it can seem defeatist, it actually adjusts our focus to the right target. And it makes us be like, okay, like it can't just be about Fred and it can't just be about Deborah and Bill. It has to be about something bigger. It has to be about building an, another structure or what in, in like philosophical terms they say a counter hegemony. Hegemony is like a sort of like large mass that, um, that for people listening that, that is kind of like a, uh, like a single narrative, if you will, that sort of encloses everything. So it's about them building an alternative one to that, one that can empower actually contest it without getting subsumed under it. And I think that's what the film, even though it's tragic, can lead us towards thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, the first, one of the first scenes we see of Fred, he's asking the classroom, like, how do we fight? We don't fight with black capitalism. We don't fight with war. And he just writes the people on the chalkboard and yeah. underlines it. Yeah, and it's yeah. not, it's not subtle, but that's, that's the film, yeah. you know. You don't fight fire that's... with fire. You fight it with water, you know. Right. We we fight. Uh, what, what does he say? We fight racism with solidarity. We fight uh, capitalism with socialism. Yeah. What do you think this means for the future of these types of social justice types of films? I mean, we've seen obviously uh, quite a few that have gotten a lot of attention. You know, Get Out. Sorry to bother you. Uh, this film, like. Uh, we talked about kind of the difficulties of of a studio or um, a, a large a large financed film being able to actually express these types of ideas. But with the success of these films, it seems that more and more of these types of stories are going to be allowed to to get placed into the spotlight or pushed towards the fore. Is this a good thing? Do you think this will like sap vitality? I mean, I think it's a good thing personally, but I know some people like my more like radical friends might be like, no, 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 because it's still a capitalist 
product and all this other stuff. And and I don't know. I, I get the critique. I do. But at the same time, I I think people are changed in small little bits by being introduced to art like this. And this is the world in which we live. And we have to build with the resources that are at our disposal. And how impactful is it that millions of people are going to get to be introduced to this character, to this person, to this story, to this way of thinking? Whereas if it was like a perfect, like I watched The Young Karl Marx, which is a great little film, you know, Raoul Peck film, but it's a great little film that's like a vehicle for giving us some sort of introduction to the ideas of Marx. But what, like 10 people saw it. So it's like, like what, you know, like what what are the legs that a film like Get Out that, uh, sorry to bother you, that a film like this has? And what does this mean for the kind of future of, of this type of conscientious cinema? Yeah, I think the cynical part of me could could say, like you had mentioned, I, I could say, well, it's just they're, they're co-opting the message or they're co-opting the story or uh, in worst case scenario, they're watering it down or diluting the message. Um, but I think, I don't think any of us would be here you know, discussing film like this, and certainly not on this platform, if we didn't truly believe in the transformative power of art. Um, now, I, I don't think a movie is going to, uh, you know, stop a war or put an end to injustice, but I do think that art has the the power to 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 change people's. If not, I, I can't remember who it was that said uh, a movie may not be able to change your mind, but it may be able to change your heart, and then we'll let your heart change your mind. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but um, I, I heard that a, a little while ago and it kind of stuck with me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that this is the framework that they have as storytellers and filmmakers. And uh, I think, you know, for my two cents, I, I would rather see movies like this getting made than movies that uh, would be valorizing the FBI, for example, which you could very easily see a version of this movie existing that would do that very thing. It would be directed by Clint Eastwood. Uh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would be it would be American <laughs> Sniper. <laughs> As Seth Rogen uh, pointed out on Twitter recently, is is basically a nation's pride from the end of Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I think there's a really great article. Um, Shaka King did an interview on GQ that I really recommend, and he talks about something called the Black Excellence Industrial Complex, and it's films like Get Out and Sorry to Bother You and Antebellum and uh, Queen and Slim. And I think I'm very much of the mindset where I, I would much rather see more get outs and, and less Judas and the Black Messiahs, not to comment on the quality of either films, but I, for me, progress is when black actors and black creators can fill every genre and every space and with a movie like this, there's a great documentary called The Murder of Fred Hampton that pretty much covers the same timeline. Um, but like you said, Austin, nobody's going to see it, you know? So I do agree with you that the importance of, of what Shaka King and Ryan Coogler did with this is so important and necessary. But I think, you know, five years out from now, we're going to see more movies from Jordan Peele, um, Avid Verne. You know, I think the legs are just now starting to be built and then they can they can walk a little bit but the success of this movie makes me really happy the fact that this movie got funding at all and and he said there's no way that he thought this movie would be made 
So the fact that he got to do it and, you know, it's nominated for Best Picture now. So I, I think it's very, very slow and, and, and it's coming, but yeah, one step at a time. But I, I, I am very hopeful. Yeah. yeah, and this is why representation matters, right? Like, like there are a lot of there are a lot of ways that we could critique certain iterations or, or manifestations of identity politics and things like that. And I get it. I'm, I'm, I want to engage in those types of conversations. But one of the amazing things about what representation does is it kind of, um, it gets us away from, again, the moralizing. And it kind of just says, well, um, there are voices out there that are creators. Like, let's say somebody like Orion Coogler, right? Who, uh, if he didn't have the exposure that he had because um, of something like Fruitvale Station, and then, um, uh, which allowed him to do something like Creed, which then allowed him to do Black Panther, or maybe it was the other way around, but whatever it was, you know, like, like this is why this matters, because he's somebody who is a, a brilliant artist and needs to be heard. Similar with Shaka King. I didn't know who Shaka King was until this film, right? So now you have another voice that is pressed to the fore, that's kind of like, oh, hey, guess what? Yeah, we can continue to make fucking stories that are just like romance films about like two white teenagers. I love a little twee, you know, me, Earl, and the dying girl. Give me that, you know? Like, give me that shit. I put that into <laughs> I my veins. <laughs> but at the same time, we can make, like you just said, Rashawn, we can make the get outs or the moonlights that are stories that um, are telling human tales but from different vantages. And this is why it matters. Not because we're trying to tick boxes and not because we're trying to be politically correct. It's no, no, no. It's saying, wait a second, let's open ourselves up to worlds that are out there that are beyond the worlds that typically get pressed to the front. And I think that's, Just, it, that's it, why it matters. And it creates such a, a richer and more interesting cultural landscape altogether when more people are enabled and and, uh, and given these opportunities. And and I, I do I do take your point, Rashawn, that uh, you don't want every every movie about the black experience to be like historically based heavy, in drama with yeah, a capital yeah. D. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. it's like, you guys, I'm tired. I don't speak for everyone, but I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. But uh, I. I I, I think as long as that doesn't preclude the the uh, the Jordan Peels of the world from from getting to make uh, whatever his next nightmare is going to be, uh, I, I say bring it all. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly, and then that's why a film um, about Lando Calrissian could be important. That's why some fucking other version of sci-fi dinosaur time travelers, but it's you know uh, it's told from from. Um, it, an East Asian experience or a South Asian Indian experience, Pakistani experience, something like that. Like those, those kinds of things are, are important, right? Um, even if they're telling similar stories that we're familiar with, like it's a dinosaur story, but oh, it's told from, again, a different angle. Oh, it's a, a jump scare paranormal activity thing, but it's told from a different angle, but it isn't made by the Wayans brothers. You know, like, like something, you know, that, that can kind of like give us this, these different angles that we can like view the world from. And I think that's, what's really, that's, what's important. Yeah. And, and, uh, windows into uh, a broader world and uh, a broader cultural experience for people at a, a young or formative age before, you know, kids aren't able to jump online and look up a bunch of books about this, that, or the other, you know, but they are able to kind of sit in front of Netflix and, uh, and, and check out what's coming through and, you know, it, it, if they see stuff that doesn't reflect their experience, it can open their minds to new ideas. That's right. Yeah. Um, 
one of my favorite movies of last year was uh, a movie called Miss Juneteenth. And it's by Channing Godfrey Peoples. There's no fuss. It's it's not this <laughs> big bombastic movie. It's just a simple drama about one black woman trying to do the best for her black daughter. And I love Judas and the Black Messiah and I love Miss Juneteenth and I love that there's space for, for both of those stories to be told. A phenomenal lead performance in that film too. Yeah. The, Nicole Bahari. Yeah. She's so she's good incredible. Okay, um, and, and that is one we... of those like really subtle. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, <laughs> We're just talking about a different movie now. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I was gonna say before before we get too far down that rabbit hole, and then um, before we get into the mailbag here, let let's go around and just last thoughts. What do we think about this film? The importance of this film, um, et cetera, et cetera. What's your favorite thing from the film? Whatever it is that you want to say. The last thing. Uh, let's start with Raymond. Um, boy, oh boy. Uh, where where to begin? I, I think we covered a lot of the bases for, for stuff that I really like in this movie. Um, I will say between my two viewings of this, I did do some, some ancillary research. I read a, a great book called The Assassination of Fred Hampton by Jeffrey Haas, uh, which was written. Uh, he's he's one of the like Black Panther lawyers, essentially. Uh, he, he worked on uh, their defense as well as the civil suit that was eventually awarded the uh, the, the, the $2 million settlement. Really great book. Uh, if you're interested in Judas and the Black Messiah, I would highly recommend that one. Um, and uh, there's there's one more thing I would say. Uh, Mark Clark, who was also slain by the police on December 4th, not as much as known about him. He's obviously not a, a public figure on the level of a Fred Hampton, but there is one really good book about him written by his sister that's just called uh, Mark Clark, Soul of a Black Panther. So if you're interested in reading more about the, uh, the context of... Uh, uh, the Party, I would also recommend that, and uh, uh, a book called From the Bullet to the Ballot uh, by Jacoby Williams. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, as far as what I really like about this movie, it, it does justice to a story that went untold for far too long, and uh, I, I'm really, really appreciative that it's out there. Yeah. Rashawn, final thoughts? I, I loved it. Second watch changed my opinion. Not completely. But I thought you could say changed your life. <laughs> <laughs> changed my life. Uh, I would say definitely watch Judas and the Black Messiah, accompany that with, it's on Vimeo for free, The Murder of Fred Hampton. It's a oh, yeah. really powerful documentary about the same period. Um, and then I think my biggest takeaway from the movie is the work that Sean Bobbitt did um, in cinema. He's the DP. He worked with uh, McQueen on all his movies. And uh, I think what he does here is also just, well worth um, recognition. So. Can can I say before Austin jumps in uh, to to tag your point about Sean Bobbitt's work in this film because I, I do think it's wonderful. This movie has so much more energy than ninety nine percent of biopics out there. Like yeah. uh, you know they they get the history they you know they they get the story right, but they also they make a fucking movie. You know, <laughs> like the, the I don't, soundtrack I don't think the camera whether it's slow or fast, I don't think the camera stops moving, but it's so subtle and you don't really call attention to it. I, I think he's every widows, everything he did with McQueen is great. Yeah. There's a phenomenal energy to this film. Can't, can't recommend it highly enough. Sorry, Austin. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price. Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. No, it's good. We got to jump into the mailbag here and uh, address some people's emails. And so what I want to do is just give a reminder. If people are wanting to chime into this conversation, you can leave us a voicemail at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. Leave us a voicemail. And if you ask us a question, uh, then we can go ahead and try to address it on the next episode. We don't have any voicemails for this week, but we do have a few emails that we're going to cover. So if you don't feel like leaving us a voicemail, you can also email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. So uh, the first email that we're going to look at is the it's from Chris about the Snyder Cut. And basically what Chris says is one thing that's kind of deep about Justice League is that every single one of the main characters aligns perfectly with the pantheon of Greek gods. Superman is Hercules, Batman is Hades, Wonder Woman, Hera, Flash, Hermes, Aquaman, Poseidon, Cyborg, Hephaestus, 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 however you say it. Um, But here's a question for you. Do you believe that Superman is a parallel or a good parallel for Jesus? Because that's how I think Snyder's Superman is betrayed. Just a big, sexy, throbbing Jesus metaphor. The obvious parallel being that he died and came back to life. I guess that would be like that. That would make Batman like Judas. If I want to keep going with this, what do you guys think? A lot of Jesus stuff going on here. Um, so what do we? Judas think? and the Kryptonian Messiah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do we think? Um, <laughs> I th- I think I said this to Ray. I don't know when, but I agree about the sexy part. But um. <laughs> uh, he, I do think there's a lot of Jesus or Christ iconography that he uses for Superman, but I think it at times it felt like he's a he wants everyone to be afraid of Superman, and I never want to be afraid of Superman. Like he's 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 good. He's just the paragon of good. So, uh, yes, <laughs> I I, uh, but I, see, what I see it. What you're saying, Rashawn, I think we kind of touched on in the last episode a little bit, is that I think sometimes Zack Snyder is focused more on what the coolest possible image is without any real consideration as to what those images may represent on a thematic or ideological level. I I kind of touched on this when I I mentioned uh, Aquaman in one scene being like viewed as this nature god and then the next scene chucking his whiskey bottle into the ocean and it's like i don't know there 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 seems to be like uh some 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 clashing ideology there but for Zack snyder i think it's just a matter of like well whatever looks the coolest jason momoa is a big hunk and we're gonna have him chucking this bottle because it's cool (laughs) like you may as well just fucking stick a cigarette in his mouth (laughs) like yeah all right so let's move on to the next question it is about uh it's Going back into the catalog here, in the back catalog, but it's from Brayden who wants to write and talk about Joker, who basically the question is, my question is this, given the social atmosphere of the Joker at the time of its production, is Arthur's repressed, possibly abused sexuality not only a causal factor in his inevitable explosive violence, a la Jack Torrance from The Shining, but is it also a direct commentary on the consequences of sexual abuse manifesting in incel-type sympathies? Love your show. Stay safe. Stay smart. Brayden. What do we think? Is 
Is this a, a type of social commentary on repressed sexuality? I don't know if that leads necessarily to the notion of incel. It's a, a kind of complicated term that oftentimes is used as justification and cover for... It's very loaded. Yeah, so it can be kind of difficult, but do you think that maybe the film is exploring these things, or, or what do we think? I remember from the very beginning a lot of folks trying to position the film in that framework. Uh, I don't necessarily know that that's, you know, this is something where like every piece of art has some kind of undergirding philosophy or politics or ideology that may be conscious or subconscious and you're going to bring your own baggage to it and that's affected by the world at large and there's like there's so many different things that you would you kind of have to go through but like I don't know if that movie were made before incel were codified or or so loaded as a term I I don't know if people would be talking as much about Arthur's sexuality mm. I, I don't know it, that's just me I, I think that that's that's probably people just bringing that to the movie but they, I don't know they, they touch on some aspects of his sexuality with how he imagines his relationship with Zazie Beetz and um, yeah I, but for my money I would say you, you could probably make that same exact movie and release it in 1999 opposite Fight Club and everyone would just kind of like talk about the social commentary and uh, you know men being men and what constitutes masculinity and like that's more the themes that I'm kind of interested in and also the uh, to, to tag the movie we're discussing today um, I think that whether or not it hits the mark I think Joker is uh, kind of trying to explore some similar uh, uh, ideology surrounding class and uh, social dynamics. Yeah, Rashawn, any thoughts on the Joker? <laughs> um, that his that email sounds like a much more interesting movie than I gave credit <laughs> for <laughs> Joker being. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't care for that movie very much, but I do think, like you said, the the whole ZZ Beats plotline is about as far as they go as as far as his sexuality goes. Um, so I never really thought about any kind of past abuse with, I guess it would be from his mother, Francis they il- Conrad. They illustrate the, I think so. I, I mean, I only saw it once, but I think they do, they, they do explicitly state that he was abused or they explicitly show that he was abused as a kid. Um, yeah. The, um, yeah. Rough, rough viewing for me with that movie. But I also, yeah, I, I also haven't thought much about that movie since we saw it. All right, but again, remember, if, if, if anybody out there, if you want to call in and you want to chime in, please, you can give leave us a voicemail at one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven or email us movies at wisecrack.co. Before we head off, where can people find you on the internet, Rashawn? At Cinephile Attack or at the Simba Tattoo on Instagram or Twitter. Um, and when cinephiles attack, find us on any platform you get your podcast. We just did an Oscar episode. We argue, we yell at each other. <laughs> did you? Did you guys pick a winner? We did. We all had three different don't, winners. No, don't spoil it. Don't spoil okay, it. Never mind. <laughs> you got to go over to when cinephiles attack to hear uh, who Rashawn yeah. picked for uh, for best picture. Awesome, Raymond. Where can people find you, brother? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. Um, Feel free to stop by, say hi, talk movies. 
Sweet. And yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I'm on Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. I have started a TikTok, everybody, and I've actually had a couple videos go viral. One where I'm talking about Christianity and another one where I'm talking about truth and then another one where it's me playing the fake drums with my penis so this just shows you the type of i noticed i i was one of your many views for the (laughs) playing drums with your penis so this just shows you the type of content that i'm producing out there uh but it's just austin.hayden and of course i've got my youtube channel that i've launched with uh just in the past few weeks with all kinds of different things musings and little video essays so you can check that out just finding austin hayden anyway we gotta get out of here we love you we got more stuff coming up including a potential new patreon poll that's going to have a list of directors that uh, we're going to put out to you to say who would you like us to basically go through their filmography and cover, kind of like we did on our Carpenter retrospective. So that'll be coming oh, up Speaking soon. of Patreon, this this episode was chosen uh, from, uh, we did a poll for uh, the Best Picture nominees, and uh, the, the Patreon audience choose this one, chose this one. So great choice, guys. Yes, so thank you to the audience. We love it when, when our Patreons select something. So you can also go to Patreon, and you can support Wisecrack that way, and you can get access to being able to vote on what it is that we're going to discuss next so that's what we got to do that's what we got to say that's what's coming up raymond send us out brother Uh, actually i'm going to give the final words to chairman fred hampton today uh and i quote if you walk through life and don't help anybody you haven't had much of a life thanks for listening